this is Rich Russo, host of the Anything Anything radio show. It is my pleasure and honor to bring you the first radio interview with the Reform Degeneration. There have been a lot of important bands in the history of New York City, starting with the doo-wop era, into the Velvet Underground, into the Ramones, the Dictators, Television, Talking Heads, Blondie, New York Dolls, the Heartbreakers. But as the 70s hit the 80s, the New York scene was drying up and dying too, except for maybe the hardcore scene. And as Seattle would become the epicenter of all things rock in the early 90s, a band that would be the bridge of the New York scene, a throwback to the late 70s emerged, Degeneration. A mix of glam and punk, garage and street, Degeneration was poised to be the next big thing. But some record label squabbles here, some band fighting issues there, completely derailed them. However, their influence is immeasurable. So let's get started as we hear the story of Degeneration. Okay, guys, how about some intros? Hey, I'm Howie Pyro. I'm the bass player. I'm Richard Bacchus. I play guitar. Danny Sage, play guitar. Jesse Mallon, I sing. I'm Michael Wilder. I play the drums. Give us the history of the band, how it started, where it started. Uh, you know, we're all old friends, and we tried to make a couple of bands. We're all young friends, and we tried to make a couple of bands. And, uh, and uh, you know, it eventually just mutated into the perfect, you know, nightmare that it is now. We used to, mutated. We used to throw a party called The Green Door, and... Uh, <clears throat> got really big and really popular and everyone all these people in bands wanted to play it and all the bands were horrible so we just decided to form a band because none of the other bands were any good where did you guys throw this party it was on uh east 24th Giorgio Gamelsky's place uh, the West. famous Russian French English producer scientist the guy discovered um, the yard birds. yeah he managed the stones for a minute and uh, the yardbirds but Giorgio had this loft and we used to play there when we were in hardcore bands, and then we didn't have any money, so we threw parties at his house and played records and sold beer and jumped around. And we rehearsed there with Degeneration for a lot of years and filmed some of the videos there. Giorgio still has the place, actually, and bands still rehearse there. He, um, Giorgio knew Jesse and me since we were like 12, 13 years old. We were like, you know, we were part of like the hardcore thing in New York, and uh, I think. I don't, we played there New Year's Eve or something. English we were, cunts. We were really little. <laughs> that was yeah, called. you I can think take half of this fake, out already. That was our favorite. It was that heart was attack. Alias, yeah, Danny yeah, was, and, and I were in heart attack together, and um, then me, Danny, and Michael were in Hope before Degeneration. So we had a band, but that didn't make any records. Just I, a few uh, auditions. Played there as well in the Blessed. Did you really? With Cheetah Chrome, yeah. Wow. Yeah, Giorgio still does parties. He's a legendary, you know, what else did he produce? Gong, Magma? Magma, the Yardbirds. He produced all kinds of, like, weird 60s, like, uh, 60s garage bands and stuff in London and France. Yeah, he used to book the Rolling Stones at, at the Crawdaddy Club. Club. So he was, like, kind of, um, you know, he was kind of a, a thread between everybody, but we all knew each other. Um, and Word of we, the day is seminal, by the way. Yeah. Seminal fluid. You could say that. His right? voice is on the Chrysalis record, our first uh, our proper first full-length release. He uh, he's the guy talking on my answer machine before Guitar Mafia, and that's Giorgio. And he's yeah. yeah. So so then uh, I don't know. We started playing um, like late '91, uh, early '92, and um, then we got signed in what '93, maybe. Made our first record for Chrysalis EMI. The name Degeneration, is it from the Reagan Youth song? Where did that come from? How'd you come up with the name? No, well, that... <laughs> I'm going to talk over you now. Uh, no, he, we were trying to think of a name, and he was think, saying, as far as this is how I remember it, I'm sure we have our own, something about degenerated 
or you were talking about Lenny Bruce and degenerate. Was from a Lenny Bruce thing, right? But then I have this old movie poster, the spelling, you know what I mean? It's from this weird old movie poster I have called Love Thy Neighbor and His Wife. It's some old porno movie, and it's a, the story <laughs> of the degeneration, you know? And then uh, that's where, like, the actual spelling came from. But you were trying to think of some kind of Lenny Bruce degenerate thing or something? Yeah, it was a joke, a Lenny Bruce joke that I probably shouldn't tell in the air. But we wanted something, you know, that was degenerated and de- like Devo, the evolution or just generation, you know, all the things we kind of liked, but it was a good play on words for us. <laughs> tell the joke. He's going to cut it up. <clears throat> tell the joke. He'll cut it up so nobody understands. Yeah, it's Lenny Bruce. It's from the 50s. You can tell it. This uh, kid says to his father, hey, Dad, what's a degenerate? His father says, just shut up and keep sucking. We used to play at this club, the Continental, which now doesn't do live music, but the bar is still there. And we but you can get it. 17 shots for a dollar, I think. So. And we took over. We were big at, like, you know, taking over a place and making it our own. We'd make mixtapes and eventually mix CDs. And throw we start, we taught ourselves how to throw bottles of things. Not me, though. Hurt the, bartenders. Yeah. There was this guy, Roger, who used to book, like, Blues Traveler and some of these other funky bands. And he would book us. And, and Trigger, who owns the place, was around a little bit. He was the first guy to really give us, like, a big guarantee, like, oh, if you pack the house, and we'd start going on later and later so we could make money at the bar, two shows a night, yeah. And, we were like uh, the Beatles at uh, the whatever. We, we told ca- everybody we were bluegrass. That's how we got in there. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, we I think for us it was the Blue band, since the five of us were all friends and had grown up, we wanted to have a band that was kind of like a gang, as we would say, and, you know, we had this personal relationship where we could have fights without speaking, you know, and just... Be hating each other or loving each other, which we're doing right now. Yeah, but you can't tell. But um, you know, we wanted to play with a lot of the bands that we looked up to, and you know, we grew up on certain records, and we wanted to have that band that would be the ultimate gang rock and roll experience. I think we felt like we missed out a lot. At least I felt on like what happened in the '70s was before our time, and just that kind of decadent rock and roll thing. And so there was a scene around the band with our friends and the way you know we we lived and hung out. So it was kind of like a party and a band in some ways but you know we took the music as serious as we could <laughs> i've always said degeneration was kind of like that bridge from the 70s and the early 80s you know what you guys gave us for the 90s for those 10 years and obviously what's going on today it's so great to have you guys back well, it was a funny time because i think we came when grunge was kind of still happening and so yeah. when it started yeah so maybe and we were touring so if we went out of major cities it wasn't appreciated as much and we had things thrown at us but you know in major cities it, it seemed to make more sense and then I guess, you know, whatever, the L.A. hair band, that whole, like, Guns N' Roses period kind of happened. So it was grunge, and then whatever would be the punk rock again reunion of, you know, Rancid and all that, that was going to come. But we were kind of in the middle. We were, you know, Lenny, Buddy, Morty. I mean, we were not that into all that stuff, but those people seemed to be very into what we were doing. You know what I mean? Uh I think it was kind of a... Well, it was the band had like a look as well as a sound, and I think at the time all the people who were into grunge just looked like, you know, maybe they were just Duty. working on a, you know... Duty farm. Graveyard that day or some sort of farm, you know, and then we like look cool and stuff so people get labeled us glam, but like, you know, we wore all that stuff 24-7, probably the same freaking outfit every day. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, but like Still. we had like a look, and that kind of, I think, kind of... You know, people didn't get it if they were, uh, you know, wearing the flannels and the Timberlands and shorts on stage and stuff. So you guys are together for a few years and then 
comes all the record label interest. I don't. It wasn't even a couple of years. It was like a year or less. I don't even know what. It was really quick. It was. Fair. But it was. It wasn't. It was like undeniable. That's the thing. People could talk shit about the band or say whatever. You know, pro con or whatever. I don't care. But you know, if you came see us at Continental, it was the real thing. You know, I think like if you if you didn't maybe you couldn't appreciate it or you loved it or whatever. Nobody was in the middle about it. And when and and when people have really strong feelings about something, and you're packing clubs in I mean in New York City, you know, record record companies are going to come. That's what they want. They want that thing. They 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 fucking they die. You know, they die for that. You know, so you can't we, buy that either. In really short, thing. yeah, you can't buy it and you can't manufacture it. Well, now you can. Obviously, the Strokes have made a freaking living out of doing that. I hear what you're saying, you know, but 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 it's like it 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 it's funny that you would say that about now because you you see that it's so transparent and so manufactured. It's like. You know, we did all know each other. We did all spend pretty much, other than sleeping, you know, we were pretty much always together. That's a real thing. And so that translated. And then the record companies are just pouring in, you know, and and the offers are pouring in. So it was like maybe it was a year, I think, you know, before we had really serious interest. So why did you guys pick Chrysalis? Well, as Rick said, before we had a record deal, we had a bar deal. That was our first uh, like dream was to be able to drink free in every bar. The way bar. we got onto Chrysalis was uh, we uh, we had a bar deal. It was at the Continental, and uh, we had the bartender fill one Jägermeister bottle full of Coke, and then there was a Jägermeister bottle full of Jägermeister. <laughs> Chrysalis people came down, and we were going shot for shot drinking the Coca-Cola, and uh, by the time that they— It was were, cocaine, wasn't it? No, it was, oh. it was well, before and they were drinking Jägermeister, and so, they, was, they got really wasted. And we're like, you guys are signed. And we're like, great. We yeah. had put out a 7-inch on Gasatanka, not Casablanca, Gasatanka, and with No Way Out and Guitar Mafia. Was that the stuff? Yeah, the version without the curse. Without the curse. And this was this guy, Bill Bartell, that we knew from a band called White Flag, and he put out, like, he did, like, the Beatles Capitol looking, like, it was on white vinyl with a Beatles-looking label, and it went through this distributor, Rockville, and so that was out. We were getting a little bit of airplay. People like Joe Ramon were coming to our shows, and you know they would, he would call radio stations for us, Rodney Bingenheimer or Oedipus, and get these guys to start playing the record. And somehow, I think having that seven inch out, and we started to get some press, and the shows so, were to get back to the Chrysalis thing. There was somebody, there was somebody who like uh, took more interest than everybody else, like in a personal way. You know, and it was an A and R person for Chrysalis. Everybody else, yeah, they're great. They came down, they bought us dinner, whatever. They got us drunk. They did drugs with us. They weren't really serious. And there was somebody who worked for Chrysalis who loved the band. She cared about the band. She seemed to get the band. And I think maybe I'm remembering it wrong. That's kind of why we wound up going there. At the time, it was still that world. You know, it's hard to picture it now. Record companies don't matter as much. But to get a deal, we'd walk around, and at that time. No New York bands had had a deal. New York was kind of a weird town where they didn't have the real respect. I mean, since Blondie or the Talking Heads, there hadn't been anything. I mean, the Beastie Boys, whether they're a rock band or not, that's debatable. But Sonic Youth are kind of arty things. So I mean, as much as the great of those bands, no rock and roll band had really gotten a fair shake or a shot. So for us to get this deal, it kind of opened the doors. And a lot of bands, the scene started to build, which you know, me and you have talked about around New York. And I don't say necessarily around us, but around us and our friends. And so all these bands would pop up, and uh, we got this deal. And the guy, the woman had signed us, Debbie Southwood was her name, Ed is, is her name. And she had, uh, who else did she had worked with at that time? She somebody. I think she worked with uh, 
Uncle Tupelo. Yeah, I think she had done some work with Uncle Tupelo, with Tweety and those guys, yeah. And um, so we, we signed to the label, and there's this guy, Fred Davis, who was there as Clive Davis's son. Oh, boy. And suddenly we start to learn really quick the evils of how this would be. First, everyone was like, oh, you guys got a deal, oh my God. And we, we kind of felt pretty excited that we had a record the deal. inside scoop from Mike Schnapp, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but then um, the president <laughs> of the company was a guy named Daniel Glass, and this is where it gets interesting. So he signs on, we meet this guy with, with Debbie and Fred Davis, and this guy's like, yeah, I'm a DJ, and I'm at clubs, and I get what you guys are doing, Jackie 60, hello. And, you know, next thing you know, <laughs> we're, you know, having a lot of fun, and we signed the contract um, at one of the clubs at Continental, and we got a little bit of money and we start to pick producers. We're meeting Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick. We're talking to, you know, other people. We're just trying to figure it all out and make the record. And within a, a couple months after the record comes out, it's getting spun 30 times, 32 times, 50 times a week on the station in New York, Q104. And we're also in Rolling Stone with a feature and we've done a tour with the Ramones and things seem really promising. We're selling out Irving Plaza level places. The record's been out about a month. The guy who runs the company, Daniel Glass, gets fired. Um, we Everybody get, gets fired. The whole company gets Under fired. Him. A new guy comes in, comes to a sold-out Irving Plaza show. So we're in Rolling Stone that month. We're on the radio like crazy. He comes in. He doesn't get it. His name was David Seegerson. He was like some Wavo dancer. And he comes down to the gig. He's not very friendly. And uh, he, call, he, was good, he calls up... Um, he called the, the word was that they told the radio station stop playing the degeneration start playing Queensryche. that's what we're pushing is the new Queensryche. so we went from 35 wow. spins a week on q104 <laughs> danny would get in his car turn his car on in brooklyn he'd hear no way out you know it was on a lot suddenly we find ourselves dropped and here we are like busted like we can't you know our first record deal lasted about two months we made the record it's pretty much not even you can't even find it and uh we had a great publicist. We met with our manager. I think me and Danny met with him at a pizza place, and he said, that's it, it's done. So I figured, like, the rest of <laughs> our friends... You've been signed for two months, your career's Like, over. the rest of the bands we saw from that hairband era previous to us, that we were going to be working at Trash and Vaudeville, selling creepers and, you know, sneaking them <laughs> off to Banditos for an extra 20. I mean, it was... <laughs> it was... Um, that and then I remember walking. We played in LA, and I remember we just stayed on the road. And we just it was quiet for a couple of months like a month and a half. We just stayed in a van and we just did it on the cheap. And somehow, this publicist that was working for us asked uh, different people, you know, for interviews on like, what happened to this band. Like, you know, we figured our lives are over. So, you got the guy from the radio station, Vinnie Marino, the program director, to say, Yeah, I was playing this record, you know, when loving it was reacting, and I was told by the label not play it anymore. So when they got dropped, you know, they were just about to break, and we were in Rolling Stone, and this article with this radio promoter ended up on the New York Post, and suddenly that hit the ra like the record company people at that time. So we went from having nothing and walking the streets going like, I don't know, we're in this van, and we're, we're starting again, or we might have to break up, to having a bidding war, and ending up with, you know, the labels at the time, Columbia and, and Arista and EMI, uh, A&M and Virgin, and we're flying back and forth to LA and meeting with people and playing like the Viper Room till we decided to to go with Sony. I mean, I don't know if I'm leaving anything out probably. Yeah, I mean, few, no, few that's what happened, but I mean, I think like I mean, at least for me, I think I mean, everybody could speak for themselves, but I mean, I, that was like a really sh bad time of year anyway. It was like the end of the year. You know, I remember it all being like uh, November, December into January, whatever, really cold. We didn't have any money or anything. But I don't ever remember thinking like the band was going to break up. We were playing, you know, and we just started to fuck with EMI really bad and say kind of like yeah. focus all our energy on that. I remember that we were begging to be dropped. 
because we were so screwed by them. Yeah, we at that couldn't point. find the record. I remember. Well, like, I mean, that we, we were trying to just get out. You know what I mean? Because we, you know, they didn't want us there, and we didn't want to be there anymore. We didn't just get dropped. We like begged to get dropped, and then we dumped the the tapes in the East River, right? Yeah, dropped all the original tapes because we hated the record at the time. But I think we wrote a song called "Every Mistake Imaginable." Yeah, did you really dump them in the river? I mean, the replacements had done that, of course, and there was a second set of masters that they used, obviously, later on for reissues. We I don't dumped really, the replacements. I don't know who the replacements tapes. are, but <laughs> did we but I personally threw the masters in the East River. Yeah, they're they're gone. We don't it's know where they're. Dope. You can digitally get it though, probably on the internet. You can get anything on YouTube. It's on YouTube, <laughs> but uh, tweet it. We had made a lost record that became a couple of the singles. We went in the studio at first with Daniel Ray, who did the Ramones Andy and all that, Chernoff. and Andy Chernoff from the Dictator. And we went out to Brooklyn to Coyote Studios before it was uh, a cool place to live, and it was just a studio. And we recorded um, like 14 songs, and that record eventually probably will come out. We own that. We didn't throw that one away, but it was. But we had you know weird managers, weird labels, weird times, weird road managers, Publicists. weird crews, weird publicists. We were weird. It was just we were fucking publicists that didn't know how to spell publicists. We had about the absolute worst rock and roll like debacle things go down, I think, that any band will have, manager-wise, all that kind of stuff. It's like, it, it would be comical if it wasn't our lives. But the, you know, the punchline, and that's what I was getting to, like, through that winter, is like, we just kept playing, and people kept coming, people kept talking about it, it was in the paper, having nothing to do with us, like, we were just doing it, and people liked it, people wanted it, and it was like, you know, so somebody like David Segerson, I don't know what, what he's doing now, you know, maybe he's a Hello. fucking date, he's a day trader Call or whatever, us. but, you know, he was a guy who, like, he's he a male prostitute on the... In Harlem, I think. You know, he didn't have the balls to, to like, stand behind it or whatever. It was. I remember people <laughs> telling me, like, well, if, if it does great, he's not going to benefit because he didn't sign it. And if it does bad, it's going to screw him up. But, you know, we just kept pressing on or whatever. And then by, you know, my birthday's the first week of April. And by my, by my birthday, we signed this huge deal with Sony. Oh, it was um, a lot more money. We got a lot of money. The one thing, this band didn't sell a lot of records, but... um. Other bands seemed to like us. We got to tour a lot of our heroes, and you know we got to have a lot of fun, and, and we definitely made some money, which was interesting. I don't we know got where a lot it is of advances, now. even though we didn't sell any records. Yeah, we just publishing deals and T-shirt merch deals, and uh, you know a couple of record deals, and uh, we were guess, like bank robbers without guns, police, <laughs> and you know the whole time. I guess the the fact that we had an audience that stuck with us in some places, then they were pretty dedicated. And and the critics, we had, we were one of these things. We got a lot of press. It was like a weird thing. David Frick, Rolling Stone, you know, critically acclaimed. Yeah, critically acclaimed. We were an industry buzz, but um, and then we started to get the tours with a lot of the groups that you know, getting to play with the Ramones, getting a tour with Kiss, getting, you know, to hang out with L Seven in the dressing room and eat bananas and you know. <laughs> <laughs> big ones, Johnny Stiff. Now, who chose the producers for all these albums? Well, the, the producer, the funnier story, if I can go back um, for the first record with EMI, the Chrysalis record, was this guy David Bianco, who did the Posies, and he did Fans Frank it. Black, Teenager Teenage of the Year. Teenage Fan Club. Teenage Fan Club. Rick Rubin. And, um, <laughs> he worked for Rick Rubin, and he did, uh, he did Danzig and stuff. Record. Yeah. But, you know, here we are, you know, we never, like, picked a producer, and we have this A&R person. She's going through a list of people, so she brings up Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick. We're all 
pretty big Cheap Trick fans, except for maybe Rick. But, um, <laughs> you know, like, this is great. Figure he's like the nerdy Pete Townsend guy that wrote all the songs. He's, you know, we're excited. He comes to New York. You're going to open this can of worms again? Like, he didn't <laughs> I learn have to the first He hated us once, and it's Roberto. It's a great story, though. It's a great, oh, it's <laughs> and it ends with the story. It's a so, great story because Rick Nielsen is me, convinced me, that I said this, not him. Yeah, all right, I said this. I'm going to go on record and tell the whole story with the ending. Oh, wait, wait, wait. So we get this list of producers, and um, you know Rick Nielsen's on there, and we're big Cheap Trick fans. We're really excited, like, wow, that'd be cool. Figure he wrote all the Cheap Trick songs. He, I figured he's like this, the nerdy Pete Townsend guy. Maybe he's gonna be the right guy for us. Comes to New York City, we go out. We, we have studio time booked the next morning at one of the high-profile SIR-type rooms, and we walk around. We're walking the streets of our neighborhood with Rick Nielsen. We're drinking beers. We take him to the Continental to see some band, and he's saying all kinds of stuff. He's pulling out his gun license. He's like, "When are we going to the bar? When are we going to the strip club?" And then the night ends. We're really excited. He's shaking, you know, people's hands with funny handshakes, and you know, it's it was just great that we could walk around with this guy that we loved. And it's about four or five in the morning, and he wants to keep drinking and I'm like I gotta sing out you know he works with Robin Zander I, I can't sing like that I gotta go to bed and he's like we have to be in the studio at 10 a.m. he's like come on Jesse I got a copy of Budokan 6 and you know let's go up to the hotel and and I was like I can't drink anymore he, he grabbed a couple sixes he went up to the hotel the Royalton the Paramount one of those shindigs and next day he shows up in the studio and we start jamming stuff, and he's, like, making fun of our songs. It was a song, nothing outside, nothing in there. Feels like suicide. He's, like, feels like off weed zine, you know, like. And he starts to, we try to jam, like, an Alice Cooper song. It was just weird. He keeps going, when are we going to go to Show World? When are we going to go here? When are we going to go this? We're going to go to the bar. We're going to. And it was just weird. Later that night, he came to this bar, this party that we hung out at. He was asking me about guys named Roberto, and I don't know what he wanted. I, so I'd never dealt with per diems. I don't deal with money. Nonetheless, it ends and we don't talk to him and it just goes on. And I got interviewed in, in BAM, a California newspaper or music paper, and they said, well, you know, somebody knew that we'd work with Cheap Trick. They were fans. What was it like working with Rick Nielsen? And I'm like, oh, all he wanted to do was drugs and go to the bars or whatever like that. And I said, it's titty bars, something like that. So that was that. I didn't think about it. I didn't think that anybody read things. This is before the internet. Now it's two years later and we get a tour with Cheap Trick. Yeah. And, Boom. and it's first night of the tour. We're in Richmond, Virginia. I Hello get out of there. the bus. And I get out of the bus first and go into the club, and I just see Rick Nielsen, who was calling me Ringo at the time, and I would call him Uncle Dick. So I said, what's up, Uncle Dick? How you doing? And he seemed like all grumpy. So I, had, I didn't read the interview, and I was just, you know, the dumb drummer. Of course, I wasn't even there when Jesse even did the interview. I had no idea what it was. And Rick, I go, hey, man, how you doing, man? What's up, Uncle Dick? He goes, well, you know me. I just like to go to strip clubs and do coke. <laughs> And I was like, what? And I came back on the bus, and Jesse's like, oh, you see uh, Rick in there? And I go, yeah. And he's like, you know, say anything? And I go, yeah. He was like, all oh, weird. And, he, and then Jesse hipped me to this whole backstory. Didn't we drive up to that gig with Cheap Trick on the front of the tour bus as well? <laughs> and then the whole show, he kept making fun of us through the gig. And, and for years, even if me and Danny would go see them on an off night, he'll still, like, wreck us from the stage. It's good nature or whatever. And then while he was saying that, I think Robin said, oh, that's true, you know, <laughs> something. Like uh, after the show, after the show, I went backstage and I said, you know, you know, just so you know, I love you guys. You guys were great. And, you know, I wasn't even there. I'm like, Rick, I had no idea. You know, whatever, man. I love you. Whatever. And Robin Zander put his arm around me and goes, ah, he's only mad because it's all true. <laughs> <laughs> but you guys all missed. I They did an encore and they they and they took each one of us separately and tore us 
to shreds personally. And I was the only one there and I was standing in the in the booth with the sound man like freaking out and I wanted to go get you guys so bad but I didn't want to miss it right and I was just like damn it so I, I just stayed it was one of the there must be a tape of it somewhere it was like one of the funniest wow. things I've ever experienced yeah I remember somebody maybe, probably you I guess but some I was in the bus and somebody said like uh, that he they came out and he <laughs> said like uh, where's Danny Sage you know it was in front of like 3,000 people they did it each one of us like, like and I was Danny just Sage? standing there going like this <laughs> He's in the bus jacking off or whatever, which, you know, maybe I was doing that. But but it was part of a song. Like, it was really amazing. It was really funny. Like, about about 10 years after, I'm in my neighborhood in Manhattan, and I walk into my hardware store to buy, like, I don't know, a couple of screws or something, and I see Tom Peterson. who Behind the uh, counter? Looking, yeah. <laughs> Tom Peterson looking at paint samples with his girlfriend, and they were supposed to play Roseland like two days later, and it was just totally bizarre. And I go, hey, man, Tom Peterson, what's up? And he's like, hi. And I'm like, hey, you know, I'm Michael from D Generation. All of a sudden, he gets this look in his eye, and it's like instant, like he was holding the grudge. And I said, hey, man, you know, I don't know if you can or whatever, but... Uh, you know, can you put me on the guest list for Roseland? He goes, I don't get a guest list. And I was like, okay, Tom. I was like, sure, you're playing Roseland. You're in Cheap Trick. You don't get a guest list. Yeah, but thanks a lot. Too. I said, thanks a lot, Tom. I, I like looked at him like pretty scary. He he, he nervously walked away. Um, you don't want anybody But he ask. actually, maybe it shows that the band was unified, that they're loyal because he wasn't the one. He's sticking by his boy Rick. They've been in band since 1960. Yeah, he was a total dick. He, he dissed us in spin. They let him review one of our records. And uh, he Tom Peter spoke. But, you know, we got to meet all these people. We went on tour with Kissel, I mean Kiss, and, um, you know, the Ramones. We learned a lot touring with the Ramones because we watched how they operated, how Monty, their road manager, took care of stuff, how they got the pizzas, and then they put up the ass fans. So if they ate the jalapeno pie, they had fans blowing across the stage. And, um, you know, it was cool. Touring with the Ramones, though, really was great. And Joey would uh, not want to be in the van with them, so he would get in our bus. It it was a little strange because we had a record deal, so we're in a tour bus, and the Ramones were in a van. They were smart. They were saving their money. We were blowing it away like sailors on acid. But Joey came on the bus, and um, <laughs> then we had off days. To, he would come. It was like a, a toy. Like, here's Joey. He would prop him up there. He'd come up, and he would sing any Ramon song that they wouldn't do that we'd want to play. So we're in, like, you know, Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, or whatever, and we take over a radio station, and Joey comes out. We want to do, you know, you're going to kill that girl. All right, let's do it. Like, And it was great. So we'd play Degeneration, and we would play with Joey, and then he would sleep in the back lounge, and he didn't want to go back in the Ramon's van. But... I would sometimes go in the Ramon's van in his spot, which was the most insane I experienced ever. It was like, I can't even say it. I, I and it's in that Monty book. I I told this whole story. Like they would just, I can't say it actually. They would say a lot of racist things. Yeah, really thing. horrible. Like yelling out the van window at people like retarded. Well, no, this was CJ. Thinking, so he was in. A, you're probably thinking of John, but well, they in a sense. Yeah, but, but there I mean, were, he, I always think like about Johnny. Like you know, I mean, I knew him pretty good. I guess you know, I think like me and Howie knew him kind of good, and. uh you know, I think with John, like, he just seemed like he didn't like anybody. And I could back that. But he kind of, like, didn't and like anybody funny. across the board. And he and he kind of got a kick out of being like that. Like, Howie and I were once with him. And, um, you know, we were in the van. 
and they kind of like kidnapped us. Like we were playing with them at University of Rochester, I think. And they kidnapped us like in the van. They said, oh, you know, let's go to House of Guitars. We said, all right, cool. That'd be great. But then it kept getting closer and closer to our set time, you know. And uh, we were like, you know, we got to get back. We got to get back. And Johnny was like, oh, you know, you got, fuck you guys. You know, you're not going to play. Like, we'll we'll just play. Don't worry about it, you know. <laughs> and we were like, no, we want to play, you know. And then so they got lost. We got lost. We're driving through Rochester. And, you know, we, you know, we never been to Rochester, but Rochester has like a, you know, a hood, you know. So we're driving through like this part of, you know, Rochester that's kind of like, you know, downtrodden or whatever, you know, the ghetto. And, uh, and him and, you know, Johnny and CJ get in this weird thing of like, uh, you know, they're getting like really racist and saying all this crazy shit. And, you know, me and Howie and also Joey, I think, was probably raised similarly to us. And, what you know, we're like cringing. And the but the more, you know, they're the kind of people and Johnny in particular, like the more we're cringing, they love it. So it just keeps escalating and escalating. But, uh, you know, yeah. And a I lot can't, of different I, names for yeah. different types of races they had that we'd never heard. Really terrible, you know, really terrible stuff. <laughs> but at the same time, like, just I think they got such a kick out of it. Johnny in particular thought it was funny. Like, Howie told this great story, too, that, you know, like, because, uh, you know, he gets a really bad rap. Johnny does but like like I always feel like I got to defend the guy you know but like I always do too yeah I mean because because you got to realize like he he was all those things probably but there's something funny about it like I think he was just doing it just to fuck with people if Johnny was alive today would you defend him in this politically correct time that we now live in yeah, I always we def- they- I knew him since I was 16. I'd go to, he had the first beta machine and we'd watch monster movies in his living room. You know, they interviewed us. Me that and was him. how he really was. It wasn't like, he wasn't like yeah. watching. They all got Hitler along. Videos. You know, they all didn't get along, but they all got along with us. That was the right. thing. We could be on the road and there was somebody in our band that could be friends with each one of them. So it was like a good connection that way because they were hating on each other so much that, which was a good lesson, I guess. But, um. Yeah. <laughs> but he would, you know, I think he Who gave Danny have? a guitar, right? Yeah. Gave you a, a Moss, right? <laughs> they once played at Coney Island High and, yeah. and they didn't sell out. If you could believe it, on their last week of shows, the second show didn't sell out. And it was a guarantee for, I don't know, like $11,000 or something. And, and Johnny handed it back to, to the people that worked at Coney Island High and stuff and said, you know, we didn't sell. Here's the money. Like, it was an honorable guy. He was, was a really honorable you guy. You know, so like that was like wild. You know, Monty was there and all this was going on business, but they gave the money back. And they would, you know, take requests from us too. Like, we'd want to hear Carbone and Not Glue or these weird songs. And he'd say, for a couple nuts, we'll do it. For a couple nuts will do it but he also he was very generous and very nice guy yeah you know, like he called me up when they he was moving to la and he right. just gave me his record collection like from the 50s all the way till and he had like you know he had these boxes of records like picture how many kids gave the, him their stupid right, single right. and he never played them in mint condition because he's really crazy like that and he had boxes and boxes and boxes of these like what are now like those killed by death you know uh, $500 punk 45s that are, no. And uh, I have a lot of them. See them. <laughs> I mean, Joey would, but, would you know. write letters to DJs at radio stations for us, you know, and uh, one of our first big New York shows, we played Webster Hall with uh, Karen Black and Luna Chicks, LA Guns, Halloween show, and he came out and introduced us. Like, you know, it was like, to us meant so much that these guys that we looked up to were giving accepting our band and were fans and it supported us it made us feel real you know <laughs> yeah they were so supportive of us i think probably the first time we played in front of more than like a thousand people it was opening for them and that's one of the hardest i remember we opened for kiss on the reunion tour in 96 people were, the typical question of journalists is like 
you know, wow, you know, how do you feel opening for Kiss? It's so hard, blah, blah, blah. We already opened for the Ramones a million times. That There's nothing harder than that. Yeah. So. Yeah, there's nothing, the Ramones, I mean, we were real, real big fish in a small pond and we played shows and we were pretty well established and then we played City Gardens for the first time we played <laughs> oh with the Ramones God. and it was just so funny. <laughs> we came out with like gifts for the crowd and threw out t-shirts and, and they came back nice, slashed sliced them by up and knives. threw them back and we were like, hey ho, let's go. Like, Get off the stage. Great. So Even funny. the first night we did with Kiss, like we had to learn how to do, if we ever learned, but what arenas or whatever. And um, we were playing at Gund Arena in Cleveland, Ohio, or something like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. And I thought maybe Springsteen was there because the crowd was going, boo, boo, boo. Like it was, it was tough. You know, we played clubs and suddenly we were on like these arena stages, but it was an experience. So how did it come about for Rico Kasich to produce No Lunch? We we interviewed nine hundred and sixty eight people and Rick Some really was, good ones. No, I mean like we <laughs> we had a lot know, of dinners. We we interviewed a million people. We talked to a million people, but there was only maybe five people that we really all wanted. And Jack out of the Douglas. out of the five people, like <laughs> two of them maybe were dead. Yeah, we talked to Jack Douglas, who you know we Did probably the hand. we had a seance with. He was on drugs. <laughs> we should have used. You know, we probably all think really highly of Jack. Um, and then Chris Thomas and Bill Price, those kind of people. Glenn Johns came down and told us we were <laughs> not as good as the Pistols. Well, Glenn Johns, who's you know whatever, if people are like nerdy or whatever, like Glenn Johns, <laughs> everybody knows who he is, and he's worked with the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and the Stones and on and on and on. And the best thing for us is like he came to watch us play. And um, he he didn't like us, you know. He thought like he had a million criticisms. So then, in that, while he was criticizing us, he's also ripping apart like the Stones, the Clash, the Pistols, Jimmy Page, the, you know, the Beatles. So we're like, you know, we were like laughing. We're like, well, he hates all our favorite bands, so we must be doing something right. So we didn't hire him. We had a pretty heavy A and R guy that was like really. It was a strange period because we had just had signed, but we didn't make the record for like a year and a half, or it didn't come out. So we were in New York going out to dinners with producers. And, you know, it was nice to go to an Italian restaurant once, twice, but after that, we started to gain a little bit of weight. We started to be home too much. Heavy. And uh, it was a heavy moment. We're like, you know, we had funny meetings. We'd meet Jerry Harrison from The Talking Heads, and he we would, he would talk to the us and they'd already about the moon. Ready for us. <laughs> he had produced live, Jerry Harrison, and he sits down, and, you know, we're these New York guys, and he's, he's all very mellow, New England guy. I don't know where he's from, but he's just talking about how the moon will, if you watch the moon, it can affect the recording process. <laughs> that guy, Jerry Harrison, he mm -hmm. kept talking about the heads and how working with the heads this and working with the heads that. And I thought he just worked with them because I don't like the talking heads. I didn't know he was in the band and I just looked him right right in the face and I just said, I never liked the talking heads. <laughs> and then the A&R guy looked at me like, what are you out of your mind? And I was just like, yeah. I never liked the band. And I would have said it probably mm -hmm. knowing that he was in the band, but I had no idea who he was. But I liked, so liked the previous Tom -tom. band, the Modern Lovers. Yeah, we yeah, talked to him Mom. about the Modern Lovers and I don't think he even remembered that. But we, you know, but so we were, yeah, we were like we had met all these people and it was just painst it was you know it was really painstaking and then our, you know we had record company people that kept saying oh you should meet with this guy you should meet with that guy so just to placate them we were doing that and the whole time we wanted rick he was like in the top three people that we wanted he had just done the weezer record you know i really liked that um we really like suicide we really like the bad brains so i like the cars a lot cars, so yeah. we said whatever we should talk to rick but rick was working on a project i don't remember what it was but he was work he was already committed so anyway we had lunch with him in union square and you know 
he's really smart. He's really funny. He we all really got nice along really, really cool. We got on with him really well. And uh, so then we said, well, we'd like to work with you. And he said, okay, I'd like to work with you. But then we had to wait like another six yeah. months or something crazy. And uh, but, but that's he also, how that you know, in talking with him, he he also made it very clear that he <laughs> he was an artist and he was not uh, working for them; that he was working for and with us, and that yeah. he was not. He even told Tom, guy, yeah, he yeah, told he, Tommy he Matola really to fuck himself. <laughs> he was like really like the ultimate, like because you know he was also really famous and a big guy, so he he could ha get what he wanted, and what he wanted was what we wanted right which is was very new for us because yeah. that Have you heard the new car stuff? not yet no. really look but forward it's to good but he, he he was like uh, he was like us if we made a ton of money like he he didn't give a shit except he lived on jelly beans and hot dogs from papaya right. king we made the record at electric lady studios paulina was very nice she's still very cool but we got to make this record it, we had already been in electric lady land and i couldn't understand why he only worked there so we had to make the record there but i think it's because he liked the papaya king across the street and the balducci's jelly beans yeah. he wouldn't let me drink you know he secretly would smoke pot with me, but he would ask. He asked me like, "Are you gonna be okay? Like to do the songs?" And I was like, "Yeah, I'm just gonna smoke a little weed." And then so he'd like show me that he had a uh, like a bowl loaded, and he just showed it to me like on the sly because nobody else in the band like you know was smoking weed. He sent me home for drinking an O'Doul's. <laughs> drinking is different, you know. We were like in a heady thing. <laughs> an O'Doul's. We thought that if he could handle the bad brain. See the thing about this band, uh, you know, we can love each other, but we can also really disrespect each other at times. And we would get a producer or a manager, and no one could control us, and so we would just tear each other apart or not get anything done or or get too much done. And Rick came in, and everybody kind of looked up to him maybe because of the cars and maybe because we we're fans maybe because of the way he related to us and he just had a great aura we worked these six hour days plus he had worked with the bad brains which we knew some of their battles and difficulties that they had had and you know they loved working with him so that was kind of for me it was a record that was made didn't even notice it was done it was like in two weeks these six hour days he comes in it's like if you go to a dentist and the you know tooth is just he takes pulls it out you don't even notice this guy just made the record and suddenly it was a snowstorm, and he pulled away, and that That's was it. <clears throat> yeah, but um, at the time, I think he kept it kind of raw, and we were still, you know, obviously talking to the Ramones a lot, and we got Joey to come in one day. We wanted to see who was taller. We have this video of, like, <laughs> Joey and Rick Ocasek. They had never met, and they came in, and we were, I think, uh, I think, Rick is taller? Yeah. I think so, yeah. Rick Okasik is Jurassic. Yeah. I they don't were know. like they were like Joey was like, you know, when I'm walking down the street, everybody's like, Rick, Rick Okasik. <laughs> and Rick was like, when I'm walking down the street, everybody's yeah. like, Joey Ramon, you know. And then some other people just called him both Howard Stern. <laughs> so how come uh, Rick didn't produce the next album that Tony Visconti ended up producing? You know, you want to try different things, you know. We I were think we a, couldn't afford him the next time. <laughs> we were in a weird place too, and we kind of got talked into like I think we were gonna do it by ourselves at first and uh we got kind of i liked again, him i know some of us didn't like him but i really liked tony visconti yeah it's not that i didn't like him he was thrown into a really fucked up part of the band like a really bad time Effed i think up. like i quit the band like before we even started tracking you know and uh it was rick just had left the band already to form uh his band vasquez so we had Todd Youth, and we had a new... We had been out on tour with Green Day, and we had some new songs. And the label, I think, had spent so much money on No Lunch, and the expectation was so huge. Like, we had this, we're going to be the next big thing. Which is something that we begged them not to do, and told them how... The we really, jackets. really did tell them how to, how, to, how to do, you know, how we could go over and... They did everything we asked them not to do, and it was completely blew up in their face, and, and it didn't have to, you know what I mean? And, well, we didn't... You know, 
Like they, we got our gigs, we did our press, we did everything. They just didn't do anything. Like it was like really insane. Took away our favorite publicists. We we had the yeah. same amount of of uh, you know to too. use their kind of term. We had the same fan base before we signed with them as after we signed with them. They thought like I remember my A and R guy, you know, who whatever that was a whole other train wreck. Like everything got really personal, which really you know screwed us up. But you know, this is like a guy who like you know, the first week that No Lunch was out or whatever, I remember him calling me from uh, whatever big stadium, Tiger Stadium or whatever. He was watching, like, the first night of Kiss, and uh, it was Kiss and Alice in Chains, who's another Sony group, Columbia group or whatever, were, you know, and that, that was our label. And he called me up, like, that night, and he was like, um, well, you know, you could hear him doing the math in his head. He was like, well, there's, you know, 86,000 people here, and you're doing 13 shows, so that's 86,000 times 13. So, like, you're going to sell, you know, 3.7 million copies of No Line. You know, I was like, dude, the record's not even out yet, you know? And, you know, anybody who thinks like that, that's not where we were coming from. So that kind of really tripped us up right off the bat. We wanted just to do an organic thing and just grow and do, like, how, you know, you're supposed to do. But right around that time was when they were record companies were really starting to do that thing where just throw it against the wall and see if it sticks. So did that lead to the breakup of the band? No, the internet came out at that time too. That was like things were just starting to change a little bit. But we did, we did the Kiss tour, and then what was happening? We'd go on stage, and you know, I had a mouth on up there. I would talk about bands that were popular at the time and make fun of them. I don't know why. I, I guess I was insecure, so I was wrecking on things. But and then those bands would like us, you know. Suddenly, you know, I'd say something about Green Day. Have a Green Day to the crowd. Have a Pearl Jam. And next thing you know, these people are at our gigs and asking us to go and play with them. So like. You know, Say social bad distortion. About Lady Gaga now. Yeah. Lady <laughs> Gaga. Maybe we can get some fucking dates. Social distortion. Um, uh-huh. You know, Offspring, Green Day, uh, from Kiss, all these bands. They, they would start to take us out, and it was so there was always a tour or something coming that would expose us to a new audience and and get us out there. And sometimes it was a battle because what we were doing was, you know, it wasn't that foreign, but to some places it didn't always work, and some audiences did. Like the Green Day tours were amazing, and they got us really excited again. We went to Europe for the first time ever to go overseas. I'd never been overseas. Suddenly we're overseas, you know, my friends, and we're playing with Green Day, and we came back from all that. And um, after that, the record was barely in the stores. Like, you're on a major label. You sign worldwide to Sony Music, and you go on tour with Green Day, and you figure they're going to get the records in the shops. And what Sony did was they were really good, or sort of good, or maybe not even good, but at least they focused on North America, but they did nothing overseas. So we go on a record store, you're playing a sold-out thing with Green Day, not one record. So we kind of couldn't really win in that place, and... Uh, it started to we started to turn on each other and I think we all started to want to do different things musically and um, we had done seven years three records and well kind of you know we had already started in the middle of that last record you know Michael made a band with Todd and Rick left and me and, and me and Jesse made a band and we all promised that we weren't gonna say anything because we wanted the thing to come out and I think it was all at that, that all at that time, just because of you know, just the vibe of everything just seemed so sour, and like we were kind of getting that disenchanted thing with the record 
company thing and how it really didn't is. seem to be like happening. And then like Jesse said, we kind of like, you know, we'd all spend so much time together even before the band. We were all in other bands with each other and, you know, done like, you know, moving furniture jobs with each other and stuff They're like that. Brothers. So Jesus by the Christ. time, <laughs> yeah, I'd seen Danny since I came out of the womb. So, you know, the, all that kind of stuff just after a while just, you know, started to grind down on us. And then, uh, you know, even during the last record, I don't think I really was talking to pretty much anybody. No management or anybody that could kind of, you know, have since the Metallica movie and the band therapy and all the new devices that people have to release that twitting. Um, we just, you know, kind of, we, we didn't know what to do. And, and yeah, whatever. It made it run its time, too. There's something that we did our thing and left off that I kind of like about it, too, because, you know, people that know the band, the ones that like it, they really like it for what it is. And, you know, it kind of had, it was a moment in a time. I mean, even the songs, the people we sung about in the songs were people that we knew they were hanging out. Some of them are dead now. Some of them don't party or dress like they used to. It was a lot of the stuff that was just happening then that we were creating and doing together. I mean, we came from Planet Queens. I also like that, you know, we did, we, we weren't milking it. You know, we did it the way we wanted to do it. And we, even when we played our last show, we didn't say that it was our last show. We just played it. And, that, you know, we knew it was, but, you know, we, we it wasn't like, you know, how people milk that kind of stuff, you know. It would have been maybe over before that, but then, like, Offspring wanted a tour, and we went out on the Offspring tour and had a different lineup. Like, things would constantly get offers, and even since then now, you know, it's been a bunch of years. We have been offered every year some festival or some other thing, and right now it just seemed like the right time that we all felt like, hey, let's dig back into this. It's just, you know, we, wow. we get... Oh, since the is. first gig, yeah. We get these offers, you know, and it's like... Yeah, we always turn 11, them down, and then now we were just like, <laughs> um, "Oh, that's creepy!" Wow. But you know, we'd get these offers from different places, and you know, so this time we got a few. And when you guys held together the New York rock scene, I mean, there was nothing going on in the '90s. It was all you guys, and then you guys break up. You guys never got as big as you should have got. And then in like 2000, the Strokes come out, and you guys are forgotten, and they basically are bridging the CBGB first era into the strokes and it's like nothing happened from like 1981 to 2000 when these guys came along but yet you guys were the bridge and you guys should have been bigger much more talented i mean did that did that like drive you nuts yeah well there's also are... an influx of people into the city like the whole city got transformed into this like cool happy fun town place that you know wasn't really like you know at the time, I was so cynical. Like I would, I hated the city. I thought the city sucked and was dead. Then, <laughs> I, I like was like, oh, it sucks. New York sucks. You know, it's mm -hmm. so I had gas and the people are so lame. Look at it now. And 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 it, I would kill for one of those days. Yeah. Now, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I would. We I we just came from the Bowery and. I, you know, I forgot somebody said, like, you look out of place or whatever, you know, like as a I joke did. to me. Yeah, how we said, and it was true. I looked at the people walking by me and I was no, like, No, I did too. I didn't, I, wasn't I, they even... were like fancy, fancy people, but I think just the whole city changed and there was like, you know, a lot of more young people like out and they came from that second wave of like, you know, uh, being able to like do stuff on computers and everybody had a band and being being in a band was already like an acceptable cool admit, thing though, for I everybody. I was pretty ahead of my time with the with the dachshund and the design of sunglasses. Yeah, Rick started yeah, it all. He was like the ultimate hipster. He started the, the hipster thing. In the middle thing. of the song, all that. So if you guys would have stayed together and released that fourth album around 2001, what do you guys think would have happened? I think the state of how <laughs> things work in the music industry, you know, you get your shot and then like... <laughs> You know, it, there's just like a, a, 
you know, it has to be new. You know what I mean? Uh, I think, though, if you, you know, I mean, not saying like, uh, you know, people are like, oh, you know, you guys would be huge or you guys would be this or you guys would be that. I believe if you have a real thing and you just do it and you do it and do it and do it and do it, true. people dig it. You know, it's like Motorhead or whatever. It's like if you if you're real and you keep playing and you keep doing it and you stick together and you don't, you know, screw yourselves and you don't, you know, put the gun in your mouth or whatever, then there's going to be, you know, 25,000 people, 100,000 people, a million people. You're going to get a bunch of people that understand what you're doing and get it and you're going to get more of those people every year. And if, you know, for me personally, if I could say like that's the one thing I think we I could own, we could own, yeah, the five of us, we made a big mistake not pursuing that you can talk about managers and record labels and publicists and all this bullshit but the real thing is is like if you if you stay focused and you keep together and you have a real thing people are going to respect that and this is the first time though the five of us been together in a real long time so it's like you got it right here now this is the friendship that we have too is you know the connection that the five of us are still here it's not like oh we got the fill-in bass player you know whatever how he couldn't make it he's got the record collection out there and you know so how did it happen for you guys all to get back together who made the first phone call what were the discussions give us a little insight into that no phone calls email come on get with it <laughs> get no with it texted yeah and it, you know it started with some emails and then we we were actually discussing today like just how it's different now because there aren't phone calls so like the tones and the emails you have to be careful what you're saying ships, ships, ships. yeah you know you might piss somebody yeah, so off, you, like unintentionally. I made a joke in my first email, and and, and I think people yeah. took it the wrong way. It went over early. like a lead balloon. Some yeah. of us weren't even talking or had seen each other in long periods of time, and um, so you know, excited. So, is there going to be new material, a new album, a new release? What are you guys thinking? We don't know. Lots of it. Tons of it. We're We're not going to play any of the old stuff. (laughs) Here's the new stuff. (laughs) (laughs) We have new outfits and everything. Yeah, orange ones that Rick's providing. So you guys got to play Madison Square Garden, which is, of course, the most famous arena in the world, and being New Yorkers obviously had to be a big thrill, and you got to open for Kiss at Madison Square Garden. Tell us about that. Play Madison Square Garden. It's funny as how a band gets, you know, our whole lives. That was probably the first concert I ever saw was Kiss with that lineup at Madison Square Garden. Probably a couple of the guys here, maybe that was their first show or maybe a peep show, but I don't know. So I get there, you know, and by the time the tour, we play the Garden, we've already played with Kiss like six or seven shows. So we're kind of getting jaded and like everyone's like, my God, you're playing the Garden. I'm like, yeah, we're opening up. We started to open. You got arrested uh, at the, on the way out. They of the kicked door. me out into the street because Kiss didn't want anybody backstage. You know, getting ready for the New York show. It had been very different the rest of the tour. We had a dress room the size of a bathroom, and we're at the Garden. They kick us out, and I go out on the street, and I'm you know going to celebrate now. Go downtown to an East Side club and <laughs> have a few sodas, and I have a Rolling Rock, and this is in the height of Giuliani. The cops roll up on me, and. Uh, yeah, I did two two days in the tombs from that, actually. But I had my laminate on. I was trying to show them that I was a New Yorker. I waited my whole life to play the garden, and I had Gene Simmons on there in my photo, and they didn't care. It was like anybody open. I wasn't even on the street. I was under that pavilion, you know, underneath the front by Penn Station. But uh, they, they got a little funny when we got to the New York show. That was my most legitimizing night ever because my parents once came to see my band when I was a little kid at Max's Kansas City, and it was like a terrible, terrible like ice chair throwing riot nightmare and there was this running joke my whole life like since i was really really little you know we're not going to come and see you play unless you play madison square garden but it was said like weekly i had that 
my whole life and it was like turned it's from a joke to like a real like annoying horrible thing so you know making that phone call uh and saying hey you're on the guest list for the madison square garden was like my most legitimizing moment ever and ace didn't it. talk to us at all i think he signed something that if he got high or drank or whatever that he wouldn't get paid so he stayed like real far away from us everyone else came well, near i think us. we were at the point where if he came near us he would have got high just from like <laughs> you know. being in the room yeah but you know you don't appreciate things so much at the time i look back at the photo of us on stage at the garden and you know i say what was rick wearing but now i actually get excited my, yeah my dad was like get a drop at the post we're office. all gonna I'm like, be wearing on this tour now. i was like dad you know uh, i'm selling out cbgb's two nights and he'd be like i'll see you when you play the garden and and still for years after kids would come up to me and go dude you played the guard and dude i'm like yeah, we that. opened up so what they tr sometimes the women could get you in trouble like when we did the garden i was so excited that we had this kiss thing and i had one girlfriend i was dating at one side of the stage at the, on the, the blue seats or the green seats and the other girlfriend at the other side and i didn't think they'd see each other so while kiss was on i was running to each side and say yeah i just played the guard how you doing and then they could see i was on the other side and i got so busted you know and you know, i was trying to map the tickets out perfectly before they had you know the, the and brokers. gene simmons would watch us and and like, you know, say we were cock blocking. He did the whole Kiss show every night. He'd see where who we were talking to and where we were going, and he would report back to us that at the end of the day that Jesse went over to this girl. She was going to be mine. I and then the end of the tour, <laughs> they give us a bass drum head, which is hanging in the John Varvatos Bowery CB store, whatever. They gave us his head, and it says, you know, each guy, Ace writes, you know, D-Generation, love your true love, rock and roll. Paul Stanley's like, how you doing? And rock and roll. Peter Chris, oh, it's great, Duh. man. And then Gene writes, D-Generation, don't you ever cock block us again, Gene Simmons. <laughs> Big bold letters. I didn't even know what I never heard that expression before. CB. I have like some seventy-five-year-old guy who looks like a rabbi. You know. <laughs> wow. Crazy stuff with Gene Simmons, of course. Anyway, I want to thank you guys. We've been here with Degeneration, all five members. Very, very cool to get you guys together. Obviously, hopefully, we'll get a new release at some point and some more live shows. It's been fantastic. And um, anything, maybe you want to end with some way to tie this whole thing together something maybe at a record one of your record label stories or maybe one of your on the road stories we close this out i want to thank everybody and hope you enjoyed uh degeneration and um what do you guys want to end with here when we were going to sign with columbia one of the things they kept telling us was like they're so big that like they could make it happen they could push the button and you know we could be big and i'm still waiting for them to push that button Oh. <laughs> <laughs>